morning. And first of all, I apologise for messing up the slides. <laughs> you had a very rapid trip through four or five <laughs> choruses here. Oh, was messing it up. Now. Yes, yes, I apologise. <laughs> and, and the other thing is that um, tomorrow is Anzac Day. And despite the fact that it seems that our government wants to destroy every memory even of um, people who fought for democracy and democracy itself, I think tomorrow we need to just take time to praise the Lord for the men and women who sacrificed so much, way beyond anything even my generation could think of. Um, And the the democracy that we once had, (laughs) and hopefully which we will eventually have again we need to praise God for that you know and and remember that um, Anzac really means something for New Zealanders and Australians and obviously for people around the world too in in their own ways do you know if there's anything no I think she said we're not allowed to people are not allowed to gather together can we mention then to about the Voices for Freedom Oh, yes, yes, by all means. If, if you wanted to go online, there is a group called Voices for Freedom who are having some kind of a gathering tomorrow, I think. At 12 o'clock. Whereabouts, Lois, do you remember? At the cemetery, 12 o'clock. Oh, at White Committee? Yeah. At White Committee, oh, okay. <coughs> well, there we go. Di, would you like to lead us in prayer for the Anzac? Absolutely, yes, yes. Father God, we come before you and we remember, Lord, that you said that even a good man would give his life for others. Even, Lord, remembering that you supremely gave your life for us. But Lord, we want to thank you for the many thousands and millions of men and women around the world, and particularly here in New Zealand, who were willing to sacrifice themselves. Lord, to live bitterly for all of those years so that we might experience democracy and something of what you destined for us to enjoy. The freedom, Lord, the freedom that you have given us as our right, as our gift from you. Lord, we just ask for your richest blessings on all of those who maybe are still alive and their families, Lord, and the organisations that honour them. But above all, Lord God, we worship you and we thank you and bless you. Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Well, you can see by the screen that it's about the fruit of the Spirit. And I found a couple of rather cute pictures on um, Google Images. (laughs) But anyway, you've probably all heard a great number of messages on the fruit of the Spirit. And no doubt you could quote Galatians 5, 23. Yes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And depending on the translation that you use, there may be some variations on the theme. But the Passion Translation says this. But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in its varied expressions. Joy that overflows, peace that subdues, Patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart and strength of spirit. Never set the law above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless. 
Now, in some of the translations, it says there is no law against such things. So there's no law of the universe that can stand against the fruit of the Spirit, regardless of what people might try. (laughs) Now, although there are nine qualities listed, they are listed as the fruit, not individual fruits. The fruit of the Spirit says, Paul, not the fruits. This beautifully rich variety of graces is thought of as one, all connected and springing from one root. Maybe it's a bit like considering the skin and the seeds of an apple as separate entities rather than essential parts of the apple. But having said that, it's possible to deal with the skins and the seeds separately anyway, but they're no less part of the essential essence of the fruit. Similarly, we can demonstrate kindness or goodness or faithfulness, for instance, on separate occasions. Yet they are aspects of the expression of God's fullness within us as we walk obediently with him. In fact, Paul is writing about the evidence that should be emerging in the lives of believers who are truly committed to Jesus and who are filled with the Holy Spirit. He could well have been considering the words of John 15, 1 to 8. Now, you might like to take this because it's quite a long passage to read. <coughs> the passage of Jesus, the, the vine and the root. So, it's John 15 and verses 1 to 8. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain on the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And Annette's just said that. And it has just said that. We can assume and we need to go to God's love boldly, brazenly even. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And Jesus had warned his disciples that the true heart of a man is evident in the fruit of his life. So, Matthew 7 16 to 20, he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Then he repeated it in verse 20. By their fruit you will recognize them. So a person's life will demonstrate the core of his or her nature. How we live both publicly and privately, will give clear evidence of the source of our lifeblood. Now what I'd like to suggest to you this morning as we look at Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit is not so much a picture of the mature Christian, 
but as a picture of the Lord himself. Just as a person's life will demonstrate the core of his or her nature, so how God himself acts is clear evidence of the nature of his being. And when we are saved, we invite Jesus into our heart to live with us. So Jesus lives within us by the power of the Spirit. And what we're talking about is the fruit of that Spirit. The Spirit is God himself inside our deepest being. And now we know, we're very familiar, I hope, with the passage in Ephesians 1, verses 17 through to 21, but at the end, verse 19 and 20, Paul prayed that the church at Ephesus would understand that the full power of the Holy Spirit was resident within them. That the resurrection power of Christ is resident within the believer. We have the fruit of the Spirit deep within us. So it is with you and me, and with every born-again believer. This is God himself within us. So the fruit of the Spirit, then, is the expression of the very nature of God himself. It may sound a bit ridiculous, but the Holy Spirit doesn't live in a little sealed-off box somewhere on the inside of you. (laughs) He permeates our whole being. He inhabits the deepest core of our being, and he longs to express himself through our body and our soul. And Graham Cook, who is a British prophet and teacher, said this, The fruit of the Spirit is where we learn to abide in His nature. I like that. The fruit of the Spirit is where we learn to abide in His nature. So the fruit of the Spirit is the essential nature of our Lord and God resident within you and me. Why else would Paul write to the Colossians in 1.27? He said, this glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not about him. It's the Lord himself. The fruit of the Spirit is the very nature, the very essence of God himself. So to fill this out a bit, we might need to look at a few scriptures. So if you've got your Bibles, you might like to be ready to flick some pages. There is is so much in the Bible about the Lord, ha ha, surprise, surprise, that we can really only just scratch the surface, really only just scratch the surface. And I would urge you, search, look more, look, look more deeply. There is so much in there. This morning we'll just take some time to look at love, joy and peace, because after all there's nine of them. And then next week, hopefully, I can cover the others a little bit more quickly. But I believe these first three, love, joy, and peace, they're the the grounds of it. Love is the basis, and then joy and peace, and then the others come out of that. (coughs) So, fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. First of all, love. And we must also, first of all, think about the English word love. It covers everything. It covers everything from erotic, passionate love, love of friends and equals, love of parents and child, and finally, it's agape, God love. But there's one word in English, and the other languages, like the Greek and the Hebrew and so on, they have different words 
for different concepts. So we read love and we get a bit blasé about it, I think, and we've been saturated with love <laughs> on our media and whatever else. But it's agape love, God's love. I resisted the temptation to put the Greek up there this time. <laughs> anyway, but it's agape love that our Lord shows to his people. And how many times have we heard about that? Right back in primary school. Jesus loves me, this I love him. Yes. 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 We learn about God's love straight away. It's, it's the basic concept. And remember what I just read from the Passion Translation. It said, where did it say? It said, the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle describes himself five times as the disciple Jesus loved. Now clearly there was something very special about his relationship with Jesus. He, James and Peter were Jesus' closest friends and John is described as the one reclining next closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. So it's no surprise that his letters wrote a great deal about the love of God. So you may like to turn to 1 John 4. Oh, hello, Sandy. Nice to see you. Oh, welcome, my friend. I must read my Right, let's find 1 John 4. 1 John 4. Now, I'm not going to read through the whole passage from 7 to 21, but I urge you to read it through afterwards. And I just want to pick up one or two verses here. Looking first of all at verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And then verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Mm -hmm. And then verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. Once again, it's not just that God is loving and kind, that he gives us his love abundantly, which of course he does, but he is love. Where there is love, Sacrificial agape love, there is God Himself. So, with that in mind, you might want to think about reading 1 Corinthians 13, and everywhere it says love, just put God. Because if God is love and love is God, I can interchange those two words anywhere I like. After all, He is love, and anything I say about love, I say equally about God. And the other way round. So love is not merely something he gives liberally. It's the essence of his nature. God is not merely loving. At his core, he is love. God alone lives in completeness and perfection. True agape love comes from God. He is its source and he is its essence then anything, again, that I say about love, I can say about God. For instance, I could take one of the verses of 
1 Corinthians 13. And I could say, God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. Our Christian faith is built on God's passionate and intense love for humanity, something Annette has again already shared with us. Isn't it lovely the way the Lord puts things together? <laughs> it was that love in Father's heart that sent Jesus to die. John 3.16, what does it say? I mean, we spout that off year after year after year. But God loved the world so passionately, so passionately, that he gave his only begotten son. Why? So that we get everything. So that we get everything. I don't know if you remember when Martin was here last. Do you remember when Martin was here? And he, said, he was sharing that when he was at Bible College, he'd been praying, and he was at a prayer meeting, and he was, he was saying, Father, I, I understand lots about you, and I understand lots about Holy Spirit, but Jesus, I don't really know who you are. And in the course of that, that meeting, there was a lady apparently who was running up and down and saying, people don't know Jesus well enough, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, then, then the Lord gave Martin this little, just this tiny little picture and it was Father and Jesus together talking about redemption. And Jesus is saying, let me go, let me go, I want to go. And honestly, you could have felt a pin drop on the floor when he shared that. It is so powerful. That's the intensity. And yet Jesus knew what was going to happen. God's love. What can you say? Amen. They're just like words. However, some people do have a skill with words, and I want to read you something out of a Brennan Manning book. And I suggest you just close your eyes and listen, because this is really, really something else. And it's actually written by a person who was contributing to his book, and his name is James Birchall. And he said this, Unlike ourselves, the Father of Jesus loves men and women not for what he finds in them, but for what lies within himself. It is because he is so unutterably good that he loves all persons, good and evil. He loves the loveless, the unloving, the unlovable. He does not detect what is congenial, appealing and attractive and respond to it with his favour. In fact, he doesn't respond at all. The Father is the source. He acts. He does not react. He initiates love. He is love without motive. Brennan Manning added this to it. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is gracious. He his love is gratuitous in a way that defies our imagination. It is completely without charge or cost. God loves you as you are, not as you should be. He loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, he loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain. 
He loves you without caution, regret, boundary, or breaking point. Time for a salah moment. Yes. Wow. God loves you as you are, not as you ought to be. He loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. He loves you without caution, without regret, without boundary, and without breaking point. Good then, <clears throat> that love is the bottom line, as it were. The other qualities, the other fruit, will naturally flow out of them. So let's consider joy. So how do we define joy? How do we describe it? It's certainly not just happiness, which tends to be very temporary and subject to sudden change in circumstances. <coughs> joy is deeply embedded in our spirit. It's quiet but it's sort of bursting to express itself. It's a bit contradictory in a way because it's very, very deep. But it's also yippee style of celebration. Sometimes it's excitement that stirs so profoundly that it's a jump around and tell sort of excitement. Remember, we're not talking about you and me here, we're talking about God. We're talking about joy being an essential attribute of God himself. But maybe, maybe a human illustration would be helpful. Remember in 2 Samuel 6, and King David, and he wanted to bring the Ark of, of Covenant back. The Philistines had won it in battle, and they wanted, he wanted to bring it back to the, to the temple. <clears throat> and he didn't do it the right way. The cart started to topple. Uzzah put his hand out to help, and God struck him dead. Now, David was really, really angry with God. <laughs> You've ever been really angry with God? David was really angry with God. But a few days later, he got himself together. He got over himself. And he went back the right way, got a cart, and was bringing it home. Now, he was full of the joy of the Lord. His relationship with the Lord was so deep. And if we read in verse 14, he said, it says, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now, I don't have the energy to dance before the Lord with all my might, but I think some of you probably do. <clears throat> While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of triumph, here was the king of Israel unashamedly leaping and prancing around the streets, even to the point where his wife looked down on him and said, you stupid idiot. Look at you making a fool of yourself. Now that's joy, not the wife, David. That's joy, leaping and prancing. Now so undignified he couldn't have cared less because he was prancing and, and leaping around for sheer joy in God's presence. That is holy joy. Now joy like that goes way beyond temporary, easily rattled, easily lost happiness. Joy is so deep in the spirit it's unshakable by circumstances and feelings. It's a glorious mixture, as I've said already, of quiet, unshakable confidence 
and potentially noisy, exuberant celebration. We're talking about God. Noisy, exuberant celebration. Amen. 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 That's why Nehemiah could say to the returning exiles in Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now a little temporary happiness yippee is not going to give you much strength when you've got to rebuild a whole city. Nehemiah knew that their attitude of grateful worship and the presence of the Lord himself would give them the strength that they need for the task ahead. Ezra and Nehemiah were both encouraging the exiles with the truth that God would impart his joy into their hearts as they prayed and celebrated. God's joy in their hearts would give them the strength they needed regardless of the opposition, and they got plenty of that. So then, let's just think about the Lord and his expressions of joy. Have you, can you imagine God getting excited about something? Can you see him brimming over with joy? If, if you saw the film of the shack, you'd get a little bit of an idea. I just love this picture of Jesus and Mac skipping over the lake. Oh, yes. oh It's beautiful. It, it's absolutely beautiful. Anyway, Luke 15, the parables in Luke 15. There's a lost sheep. There's a woman who lost a very, very precious coin. And the prodigal son, the lost son. Now both the shepherd who lost his sheep and the woman who had misplaced her coin were so relieved and grateful and excited to share the news. And of course when the son came home, father just put on the biggest party that ever been in the household. But then in verse 7 and again in verse 10, Jesus says this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need to. Even more than the biggest party the father had ever had when his son came back, even more there is rejoicing in heaven. Father in 32, verse 32 said, we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to. Do you think that celebration was a, phew, glad got that one sorted? <laughs> I don't think so. And I believe in the same way <clears throat> that heaven has a yippee party every time a sinner repents. Amen. Glory. They know how to celebrate in heaven. Has any of you ever listened to Kat Kerr on a lighter streams? She will tell you that heaven is one big party. Amen. They know how to celebrate. Amen. We know from the scriptures that the Lord doesn't want anybody to be lost. And he wants everyone to come to salvation. He wants multiple parties, Amen. multiple celebrations. Why not? Now just think about your image of Jesus when he was on earth. Do you think he was somber and serious and earnest all the time? Do you really think that thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would have traipsed all over the country to follow him if he was a sourpuss? Come on. He was full of the joy of the Lord. Amen. And he might not have been laughing and yahooing all the time, but there was something deep inside him that was just pure joy. And after all, he had spent, even in his earthly time, he spent a great deal of those hours with Father. Yes. 
And the illustrations of the lost sheep and the coin and the sun give us a glimpse, just a tiny glimpse, of the rejoicing that heaven indulges in. <laughs> and in fact, think about this, Zephaniah 3.17, and you probably know this verse. Listen to what it says though. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. That's not, oh, here it's you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Now, come on, God's in heaven singing. Look at my people. Wow. Hallelujah. And uh, Jesus said um, in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So no more sour faces, thank you. (laughs) Smiles and giggles and yippies all around. And then he says, my command is this, that you love one another as I have loved you. So if you love one another, you love them with deep joy. Yes. Yes. The joy wells up within us as we walk in obedience and as we walk and, we, and it comes directly from the Lord. It is his joy. Amen. Jesus is joyful and he shares his joy with you and me. <clears throat> and just, just recently the Lord's been helping to get it into my heart what I'm preaching. Because <laughs> he doesn't let you get away with saying things you haven't had any taste of. So <laughs> he's starting to give me a little glimpse of what that means. <laughs> And I've already shared that lovely scene in the shack. But also, if you remember, Papa God was this person who was just so bursting with peace and joy and love. It was just bursting out all the time. And all the time you'd hear Papa saying to Mac, I'm particularly fond of you. I'm especially fond of you. And it's just beautiful. It is really just beautiful. (coughs) Of course, a lot of people are a little upset because Papa was a big <laughs> black African woman. <laughs> but, but the image was glorious. The image was absolutely glorious. So the, la- the last thing I want to share with you about joy goes back to the joy of the Lord and the essence of its being. And we need to consider that the Trinity live together in perfect harmony of love and joy and peace. They delight in one another. So when we look at Hebrews 12, Jesus knew when he came to earth that eventually, eventually he would be going back to participate in that beautiful joy in heaven again. And Hebrews 12 too says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He knew, he knew he was going back to that 
unshakable joy, the depth that he temporarily gave up, but he knew he was going back to it. And so then the Lord gives us a blessing from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so the third quality to look at this morning is peace. And when I started to think about peace, my mind went back to sitting in the classroom in intermediate school and the teacher saying, draw a picture that tells you about peace. (laughs) Oh, okay. So we all tried all sorts of things, but the one, that the picture that got the applause was a picture of hills, just hills. And so I thought about that. When you go out into the hills, out into the bush, away from the noise and the distraction of the town and the city, and you're away from all the bustling, you're leaving it behind, there's something very peaceful. Something really, really enriching. It might be in the bush, it might be up in the hills, it might be down on a deserted beach, but you're alone there with yourself and with the Lord. There might even be some sound. It won't be noise, but there might be sound. It might be the waves, or it might be a little stream, or it might be the fantails flitting around in the trees. It's not necessarily silent. But there's something very cool, very calm, very gentle, soothing, life-giving in that kind of scene. Real life-giving. So to my mind, a scene like that is a tiny glimpse of the nature of the Lord. (coughs) I think of the presence of the Lord as the ultimate expression of glorious peace and gentleness (coughs) and calm. There's no hint of anxiety or stress or urgency. (coughs) And even when you think about it, the the picture we have of the throne room in Revelations 5 and 6, it's a scene of great splendour and power And it's certainly not silent because the living creatures and the elders are worshipping the whole time. But it is (coughs) a scene of worship and joy and wonder and delight in an atmosphere of pure, unadulterated peace and joy. Even in the noise of 24 elders and the angels all around and millions upon millions of people praising, there's peace there the very essence of God's presence. And one of the names of God that is listed as one of the seven redemptive names of God that got to deal with with redemption, obviously, is in Judges 6, Jehovah Shalom, the story of Gideon. And in the course of of the event that is recorded there, he builds an altar and he calls it Jehovah Shalom. And he's rescuing Israel from the Midianites. Now, we don't need to go into the whole story. But, despite Gideon's anxiety and his initial reluctance, he had come to a place of recognising the power of God's peace in that situation. Remember, he was hiding because the Midianites were tearing them to pieces. And not very peaceful. But he'd come to a place in dealing with the Lord over this episode. I often wondered why he called it peace when it was in a war situation. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, it makes sense. 
You've come to that place of recognizing the presence of God here, the power of God here, means I can I can do this in complete peace, complete understanding and confidence. And both Isaiah and Micah prophesied that Israel's Messiah would himself be Israel's peace. Not just that he would give Israel peace, but he would actually be their peace. If you look back to Isaiah 9, the, the prophecy that we always come up with at Christmas time, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Micah, chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, and he will be our peace. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus lived out, obviously lived out the truth of those prophecies. He said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Israel at the time was under the political control of the Romans with their harsh, cruel treatment of anybody who dared to look the other way. As well as the Jewish religious leaders who seemed more interested in political power and influence than in true faithfulness to the Lord. And Jesus warned his disciples that they could expect to be challenged in an environment like that. So John 13, oh sorry, John 16, verse 33. I've told you these things. He's telling them all about the troubles that are going to be coming. Nice. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now the Romans might come along and beat you up, put you in prison, kill you. But in me, you will have peace. Wow, what a wonderful promise. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So one of his most precious gifts to us is his gift of peace. In John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives, don't let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. So, as Jesus' disciples, we too are recipients of this very precious gift, his peace. Because Paul wanted the church to know this truth, he wrote about God's gift of peace in almost every one of his letters. Now, obviously, you don't want to sit here and have a Bible study while we flick over every one of the letters of Paul. But he wrote about the peace of God and the God of peace to the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Philippians, and the Thessalonians. For instance, in, in Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he himself is our Peace. And that verse that we know so well, Philippians 4 7, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I think I've shared with you before, some years ago, when things were a bit hard at home, and I was in the middle of trying to do some academic stuff that was a little bit beyond me. 
and I'm thinking I should be falling apart at the seams here. And I just had that peace. I couldn't tell you. I don't know why. I don't know. I mean, obviously I do. The Lord had given me his peace when I should have been falling apart. And the reality of it is just glorious. Just glorious. So there we have it. Love, joy, and peace. And I'll leave you with two blessings from Thessalonians. One of them from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says this. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to know just what to say to you because you have given us so much and you continue to give us so much. Father, thank you for your outrageous love your extraordinary love and your gifts of peace and joy. Father, as each day goes by, I pray that you will speak more and more deeply into our hearts, reveal more of yourself, draw us more and more closely to yourself. Lord, that we might live our lives in ways that bring you great joy, that you will go, yippee, look at my kids. Lord God, we just thank you. We thank you, we bless you, we rededicate ourselves to you because you are the only thing worth living for. So Lord, thank you. Precious God, thank you.